Well, the year was 1788, the same year the brand new United States Constitution was ratified, and the man who would become Adoniram Judson was born. Judson grew up a bookworm, reading by the age of three, but even though his father was a minister, he did not grow up as a Christian. To the contrary, he grew up as a deist. He was led away from the faith by an unbelieving friend in college named Jacob Eames. But Judson's conversion to Christ was largely due to that same unbelieving friend. After college, Judson was traveling in order to experience life. He found himself in an inn one evening, and he was placed in a room next to that of a dying man. And all night long, he could hear the moans and groans of this man who was presumably passing away next to him. And it troubled him all night long. He was chilled by the thought of what comes next after life. The next morning, Judson asked about the man next door, and he learned that he had indeed passed away. But he was not prepared for what came next, because the clerk told him that the man was named Jacob Eames. It was his friend from college, the very same one who had led him away from the faith. And now he was dead and lost. And the shock of this drove Judson back to the Lord as he realized he was just as lost He gave his life to Christ and devoted his entire life to serving his new master. His aspirations of personal fame went away. He devoted his life to becoming a missionary. And in 1812, after being married for just seven days, Judson and his wife set sail for India. But when they got there, they were denied entrance by the East Indian Company. They didn't want Christians interfering with their relationships with Muslims and Hindus. And can you imagine that the fear and the frustration after sailing halfway around the world back then by boat only to be denied entrance? Well, by God's providence, they bounced off the door of India and they fell into the door of Burma. Now, back then, nobody thought of going to Burma. There were zero Christians in Burma. It was a hostile country. There were no missionaries there. There were no contacts there, but they went anyway. This was not an easy road for them. Trial after trial, they found. First, their newborn son died after eight months. Also, they were constantly plagued by all the idolatry they had to witness. And to make matters worse, there were no converts. Year after year, they ministered the gospel faithfully, but no one believed. After six long, heartbreaking years of ministry, they finally saw one convert. And it was only after 12 years of ministry that there were 18 believers. Things were going to get worse. The year now is 1824, and the Anglo-Burmese War broke out, Burma and the British. Judson was arrested and imprisoned because they thought he was a British spy. And so for a couple years, he suffered intense torture in these terrible prisons He barely made it out alive a few few years later when the war ended. But that was not good news. Because shortly after he was released from prison, his wife passed away. Suffering from stress, the conflict of war, disease. Six months after that, their second child passed away as well. So now Judson was alone. The year is 1826. Now this story is not over. But just so far, what do you think? 
What is your response to this man's life so far? For most in the world, they would say, this is sad and pathetic. I mean, how meaningless. What, what a waste of life. Who would do that? I'm just saying, he could have had such a nice, enjoyable, peaceful life had he stayed in America. And he traded all of that for what? Just a few converts? He barely made an impact, just a drop in the bucket. And there are many missionaries and pastors like this. And the world would call them failures. They never see any fruit. They never see a harvest. I mean, how discouraging is that? It makes you start to question yourself, your mission. What, what am I doing? Am I doing things right? Is this worth it? Why not just, just quit and enjoy a nice, peaceful life? Many people have. But things aren't much better on home soil, though. After years of pleading, how many loved ones still refuse to come to the Lord? And after years of teaching, how many Christians even, they still don't grow. They're stagnant in their spiritual growth. Churches today are either weak or dying or shallow or apostate. And let's not even get into the future for Christians in America. Things are bad, getting worse. How how much longer until Christians are persecuted again? How much longer until preaching sin is a hate crime, hate speech? When you look around, there are many reasons to be discouraged. Is this it? Is this God's glorious plan for his kingdom? Is this really God's plan? Shouldn't things be better than this? Shouldn't things be going differently? Why are so many things going wrong? Do you ever find yourself thinking like this? You find yourself asking these questions. Do you find yourself getting discouraged by some of the things you see going on around you? And if so, let me tell you that you shouldn't. There is no call for discouragement here at all. And why is that? It's because all things are going exactly according to plan. God's plan for his kingdom is right on track. And you might think, wait, what? How can this be? It kind of sounds like a bad plan. But it's not. You are just fixated on the present. You're not seeing the future. At one point, there's a group of 11 disciples. And they thought all was lost as they witnessed their master being crucified and killed on a tree. I mean, talk about discouraging. Just throw in the towel. It's over. He's dead. It's done. If this is God's plan, it can't be a good plan. This has to be wrong. But no, it's not wrong. Just wait. Wait three days and you'll see. There's glory to come. And the same is true today. If you're discouraged by what you see happening, just wait. Because God's kingdom is progressing. It is expanding. It is coming, even if you can't tell. If you don't get this, if you don't believe this, then you especially need a word from the Lord today. Just like the Jews of Christ's day did. They too had expectations of God's kingdom. Except they were wrong. They too subscribed to myths and illusions about God's kingdom. Except they were wrong. So Jesus came and he set them straight. He told them the kingdom is not going to come like you expect. It's not going to 
chart the course that you expect. It's not going to look like what you expect. It's going to be different. And they needed to get this straight and accept this. Otherwise, they might miss it. They might miss him. He was the king of the kingdom. He was right before them. And they were on the verge of missing him. Many of them did. And this is why Jesus reveals to them mysteries and truths about God's true kingdom plan. This is what we find Jesus doing in our passage today. Take your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. We're nearing the end of Mark 4 as we go through the Gospel of Mark. And we're finishing up the parables of Jesus. And through them, as with all of the parables, Christ is revealing the kingdom of God. He's revealing mysteries of the kingdom to those who have ears to hear. And, and this message, it's still one we need to hear and heed today. Because the kingdom of God might not be what you expect. It might not come like you expect. Do you know God's plan for his unfolding kingdom? Do you know what to expect? And do you know what you should be doing in light of this, in light of his plan for his kingdom? Do you know what you're supposed to do? Today we're going to hear from Jesus. We're going to find out. We're going to look at Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. And from this, we want to discover two unexpected revelations about God's kingdom in this age. Two unexpected revelations about God's kingdom in this age so that that you might know, so that you might be encouraged, and so that you might rightly respond to what God is doing. We're going to find out what is God doing. And we want to know what we should be doing in light of that. So two unexpected revelations about God's kingdom. The first is this. The kingdom grows incomprehensibly. The kingdom grows incomprehensibly. And if you're taking notes, I know it's a long word. Just sound it out. You know it. The kingdom grows incomprehensibly. Look at verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now here we have yet another parable using the analogy of seed just like the parable of the soils, just like the parable of the wheat and the tares. These three parables, they all start the same way. There's a guy, he goes out to a field, he throws some seed. But after that, these parables all all diverge. And in this case, the guy goes out to a field, he throws some seed, and then he goes to sleep. Verse 27, he goes to bed at night. He gets up by day. The seed sprouts and grows. How? He doesn't know. You have this cycle of waking and sleeping. It's in the present tense, meaning this is happening repeatedly. It's over time. At first, this farmer is very active. He's sowing the seed. But when that work is done, he's done. He goes about his other business. He wakes, he sleeps, days go by, and he doesn't touch the field. But all the while, the seed is working. While he's away, the seed is working. It's growing. Just recently, Angel and I got into the world of farming, just a little bit. 
Nothing major, but we start off by building a little 4x4 four four raised bed you know, for a veggie garden. Pretty simple stuff, but it was a lot of work to get it started. Had to you know, go buy the redwood, cut it to size, drill it together, lay down chicken wire, because there's no way I'm letting the gophers steal that, steal my food. Fill it with compost, and then we had to sow the seeds, all from seeds, you know, carrots, lettuce, peas, spinach, more. It's good stuff, pretty, pretty fun. We threw them in, watered, and then that's it. We just walked away. Nothing more we could do. Days went by, nights went by, we went about our business. We came back, we looked at this little box, and it was green. All these little shoots had started popping up all over the place. And it's, it's, it's amazing. You think, how'd this happen? I didn't do anything. Did someone come and, and trade my seeds for little plants? Or, Well, no, but we know in a way unknown to us, unseen to us, the seed was working. It was coming to life. And likewise, this farmer, even though he's not doing anything at this point, his work is done, the seed works. The seed starts to grow all by itself. Technically, we would call this today germination for seeds. Seeds are dormant. They just sit there. They don't do anything. But you put them in the ground, you add some water, the right temperature, they come to life. Even after being dormant for decades, with the right conditions, they will immediately come alive. The seed busts out of its shell, sends a little shoot skyward as if it knows which way is up, which is amazing. You can put them in any way and they always find the sky. And how does this work? The farmer doesn't know how all this happens. Verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. So as it happens by itself, the word in the Greek is automatos, which you can probably guess where we get the word automatic from. It just happens automatically. Despite the farmer's ignorance, despite his lack of comprehension, the seed still works. It sprouts, it grows by itself. And eventually it bears fruit. Once the seed is sown, a process starts that will eventually result in a harvest. Verse 29, but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This farmer was evidently sowing something like wheat, and he was doing it not for looks. He wants a harvest. This was not a flower garden for show. He wants a harvest. And when the fruit is ripe, when the, when the wheat is ripe, puts in the sickle, the harvest has come. And that's pretty much it. That's, that's really all there is to this parable on, on that surface level. This is the parable of the seed. It's, it's a special parable because it's the only one that's unique to Mark. You don't find this in Matthew or Luke. But I'm sure you can tell, though, that Jesus isn't just giving a lesson on botany. There is something more to his words here, something more going on. We've been asking that of all of the parables. We ask that again. What's the point? What was he really teaching with this little story, this parable? Well, once again, the key to unlocking this parable, as with all of them, it's in the first few words. How does he start this off? Verse 26. He says, The kingdom of God is like... Dot, dot, dot. You know, we're coming to the end of our study on the parables this morning. And, and hopefully you, don't, you know by now that the key to understanding the parables of Jesus is understanding the kingdom, the kingdom of God, what Scripture means by the kingdom of God. Jesus introduces all of the parables in the same way. 
The kingdom of God is like leaven. The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And on and on and on. They're all the same. They all start the same. In each case, he's revealing something previously unknown about the kingdom. And so if you want to get that, you've got to get the kingdom. Do you you understand what scripture means when it talks about the kingdom? And it's everywhere. Do you you have an understanding of that? We covered this a few weeks ago in detail. Let me give you the, the short version recap. You have to get this you know, really in the front of your mind to, to track here. What is the kingdom of God? What is it? How would you define it? I'll give you a, a short one-liner. The kingdom of God, it's the exercise of God's rule over his creation. It's pretty simple. The exercise of God's rule over his creation. In one sense, God always rules. He, he upholds creation itself. But in another sense, right now, sin rules and Satan rules. Several times, Scripture calls Satan the God of this world, the ruler of this world. After the fall, God's rule over creation was thwarted by sin and Satan. And all of mankind has joined that rebellion against God's rule. But but that's not good. It ought not be that way. And there are terrible consequences for this. And God could have just instantly wiped out creation, started over, made it perfect. right? But instead he chose to redeem this creation and to redeem man, his chief creation. After all, even our rebellion was a part of his sovereign plan. So after the fall, God immediately set in motion this plan to restore his rightful rule over his creation and a plan to redeem man at the same time. And this, that's the kingdom. That's what the Bible looks forward to when it talks about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom? It's that future time when sin and Satan no longer rule, but God's will is done once again. It's just like Jesus taught us to pray. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. Your what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That, that's the kingdom. That's what we're looking forward to. We look forward to that time. And in Scripture, God is progressively revealing more and more info about that kingdom plan, how, how it's going to unfold, what it's going to look like. And nowhere... Is that plan more revealed than in Jesus? Jesus comes and and blows the lid open on God's kingdom plan. The first Adam was supposed to be a mediator of God's perfect rule, but he failed. So God provided a second Adam, a perfect man, who is also God himself, to be the ruler of God's kingdom. And that is Jesus the Christ. He is God himself. He is the King of Kings. And Jesus comes and he reveals more of God's plan. But here's where there's a real twist in the story. There's a twist here. You see, the Jews, God's Old Testament people, they were looking forward to the kingdom. They were looking forward to God's restored rule. But they had some things wrong. They had several misconceptions about God's kingdom. 
So Jesus set them straight. And that's what he's doing in all of the parables. He's setting them straight. He's, he's dispelling myths and revealing mysteries about the kingdom to those who have ears to hear. For example, in the parable of the soils, we learned what? That the kingdom will be resisted and opposed. No Jew is expecting that. They were not expecting the kingdom to be resisted when it came. But it will be by many. But there will still be a harvest. Also, Jesus later, he reveals to his disciples, Oh yeah, by the way, you know me, the king, I have to die. Wait, what? The king has to die? Well, yes, Jesus has to die. Why? To defeat sin and Satan. This must happen if God's rule is to be restored and if man is to be redeemed. He he fills in those missing pieces of the puzzle. So needless to say, we find Jesus dropping bombshell after bombshell on people as to what the kingdom is really going to be like and look like they were not expecting. They thought it was arriving instantly. It wasn't. To be sure, through his atonement, Jesus brought about the restoration of God's rule in the hearts of believers. And in that regard, this we're seeing the kingdom right now. But the full expression of God's rule over creation is still future. Now, you get that? Hopefully, we come back to our parable, the parable of the seed now. Because here we find Jesus is again revealing something about the kingdom. What is it? What's he revealing about God's rule? The answer, it's pretty simple. The kingdom will grow. The kingdom will grow. God is not just going to snap his fingers, judge all unbelievers, and usher in his kingdom just like that. That will happen. It's called the second coming of Christ. But not yet. In this age, the restoration of his rule will grow. Slowly at times, but surely. Surely. And it will do this all by itself. And that's the message of the parable of the seed. In a way you may not know, in a way you may not understand, in a way you may not perceive, the kingdom will grow because there is great power in this seed. In a grand sense, Jesus is the sower. And the seed is his word, the gospel of the kingdom. And when that word is unleashed, when it is sown, A process begins that will result in a harvest. Apart from any other agency. Because the power to establish the kingdom is bound up in that seed. So understand, Jesus set this process in motion. He came to sow the word. And this parable clarifies the relationship between his mission and his results. Because look, at the time, the world viewed Jesus... As a failure. I mean, what? After all that ministry, 11 disciples? That's it? That's pathetic. 11 disciples? And where's this amazing kingdom? Where is it? But they failed to realize he he was sowing. He was sowing. And though you may not perceive or comprehend it, the seed is out there now. And it's working. It's growing. All by itself, God's sovereign will is being done. It's producing a great harvest. And at the end of the age, the number of redeemed will be complete. 
God will harvest them and then He will bring in His kingdom. The language of verse 29, by the way, it's unmistakable. This is eschatological, the reaping, which that just means the end of the age. This is talking about the end of the age. The same is true in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Jesus explains there that the reaping, the harvest, represents the end of the age. And this is only confirmed in Revelation chapter 14, verse 15. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice saying, Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And that's a second coming. But what we find for now, for now, is that the kingdom now will grow. Sometimes incomprehensibly, you may not know, you may not understand, but the seed does the work. How does the seed work? We, we don't always know. And today we know a lot more about the life cycle of a seed. We know about DNA. But even still, the mystery of life from death will always evade us. A seed must die before it comes to life. Yet every day it happens. And so it is with the gospel of the kingdom. Still, lives are changed and the kingdom grows. Now we need to take this a step further, but, but before we do that, let's just, just quickly throw in this second parable here. We're going to finish it off. Because once you get the parable of the seed, the parable of the mustard seed, it falls right in place. So let's just do this now. In verse 30, we'll start there. We find the second now, the second unexpected revelation about the growth of God's kingdom. First, the kingdom grows incomprehensibly. Second, the kingdom starts insignificantly. The kingdom starts insignificantly. Verse 30. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Well, if you thought we were done with the seed parables, there's one more. This time we have a specific seed, the mustard seed. Crush them together, add some water, you get mustard. That's where it comes from. But this parable is not about the condiment of mustard, it's about the seed itself, just one little seed. And the point, it's pretty obvious, you probably already pick up on it, it's, the emphasis is this contrast. A contrast is being formed because mustard seeds are small. They're really small. They were the smallest seeds known to the Palestinian farmer. They're so small that if you're not careful, you'll, you'll easily lose them, you'll lose track of them. I mentioned earlier how we just started building our own little vegetable garden. And part of that, we sowed, these, these seeds are called mescaline. Is that right, mescaline? It's a type of lettuce, I guess. And the seed packet, there's like a thousand seeds in this little packet. And they're so small. And you just, you just sow them all over the place. You could probably pinch a hundred just between two of your fingers. They're so small. And that's what mustard seeds are like. They're that small. Except mustard seeds are, are round. They're like little pebbles. Which is worse because then they just roll out of your hands. 
And if you lose them, if they fall on the ground, just forget about it. Not going to find it. Just put some water there, let it grow, and then move it, transplant it. But you're not going to find the seeds. But amazingly, even more than the lettuce seed, this, this tiny little mustard seed, when it's sown, it grows into this massive shrub or tree, 15 feet tall by 15 feet wide. Now, it's not the tallest tree in the world. There's no cedar, but that, that's not the point. The point is this contrast, the highlight. Look, at, look how something so small transforms into something so massive. You know, if you didn't know better and you judged a book by its cover, you would look at this tiny little mustard seed and you would totally disregard it. You'd say, look at this puny seed. What could ever come from this? What, what could ever come from this little seed? You would think it's so insignificant. But, but sow it in the ground and then wait. Just wait and you'll see. Over time it will rise to a plant so large that the birds of the air will nest in it. Now, now that you're more familiar with what's going on here, it's very explicit, verse 30. He's revealing more, even more about the kingdom. This is talking about something about the kingdom. Here, though, if, if you've been following along, what, what he's teaching here should, should click a little more easily. What's he really saying? Again, it's not a lesson on botany, how to raise a mustard seed. He's teaching us about the kingdom. What, what is it in this second parable? And the answer he's saying is that the kingdom will start insignificantly. It will start small, really small. It will almost be unrecognizable at first. But you would be foolish to disregard it because in time it will outdo the greatest of the kingdoms of earth. Again, the Jews, they weren't expecting this. They weren't expecting the kingdom to start so small. They were expecting the kingdom to come immediately with power, like a lightning bolt. They thought the Messiah would come with a sword in his hand. He would defeat Rome. He would set up the kingdom right then and there. It's, just, oh, it's over. Done. Immediately. If anything, Jesus should be comparing the kingdom to a volcano and a volcanic eruption. Just something powerful and furious, the coming of God's kingdom. Not this puny little slow-growing mustard seed but you can see how they had it wrong. They were mistaken. And look, the day will come when Jesus will return and the sign of the Son of Man will flash in the sky for all to see. And in a fury, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. But the Jews failed to understand that before that happens, in this age, God has different plans. His kingdom is unfolding differently. God will restore his rule and redeem man over the centuries. And it's going to start small. This was a big deal. This was very difficult for the Jews to grasp. Surely they thought when the Messiah came, everybody would follow him. Who's not going to follow him? This was not to be the case. Jesus had thousands of followers. But they all fell away. They all fell away. In the end, after his resurrection, how many true disciples did he have? When all was said and done, he died, he rose. How many true disciples did he have? 
500. First Corinthians 15, he, he in his resurrection form, he appeared to 500. That's it. After three years, he managed just 500 disciples. That's pathetic to the world standard. That's it. There were two million people in Palestine at that time. And he had signs and wonders. He was doing so much, and that's it. 500. I mean, you could draw more people with an outdoor concert than that. Again, looking at Jesus like the world does, you would think he was a total failure. He didn't reach that many people. I mean, forget the world, too. He's just in a tiny strip of land in the Middle East. That's it? Instead, actually, he was rejected by those same people, and they killed him. So we're really supposed to believe that this Jewish carpenter from the no-name town of Nazareth, who was actually rejected and killed by his own people, is the savior of the world and the king of the kingdom. We're supposed to believe that. Yes. Yes, you are. And the kingdom starts small. Its beginning seems insignificant, but remember the mustard seed. Like the mustard seed, it has power in itself to transform into something greater. It's like the prophet Daniel foresaw in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. This small stone would become this huge mountain that would fill the whole earth. And furthermore, like Daniel and Ezekiel and many Old Testament prophets saw, God's kingdom would expand so large, it would go beyond the borders of Israel. It would even include the Gentile nations. And in the Old Testament, the inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom was pictured as what? As birds nesting in a tree. And most believe that Jesus is using the same imagery in this parable to indicate that this kingdom, as it grows, will even include the Gentile, the nations of the earth. Verse 33, just finishing this section up. With so many parables, he was speaking to them, speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. As we learned last week, the parables have a very unique function of being able to sift true from false disciples. Jesus was unloading a ton of revelation to them but it could only be perceived and accepted with eyes and ears of faith. For those who do have faith, though, for those who do believe the message and you do believe in him, there is so much to learn from what he reveals. Like seed in the soil, the kingdom grows, sometimes incomprehensibly. And like the mustard seed, the kingdom starts insignificantly. But it will grow. Through these parables, Christ is revealing so much information about what God is doing in this age. God's plan for his kingdom revealed. But you know what? It's not just information. He's not telling us all this just to to feed our minds with some more data about God's plan. Okay, now you know. That's it. Just for your head. This isn't just head knowledge. When you learn, you have eyes and ears of faith to discern God's kingdom plan. It calls on you. It calls on you to respond. And as you learn what what God is doing, it should spur you into action. 
We want to do this now. Can I suggest to you, with the time we have left, two applications to these parables, to, to God's plan, to what God is doing. Christ, in, in all of these parables, he's revealing more and more about what God is doing in this age. When you get that, it calls on you. So let me just suggest a couple of applications to these parables of the kingdom, especially the ones we've seen today, the seed and the mustard seed. And the first is this. Be encouraged by what God is doing. Christ is revealing to us what God is doing. So first, be encouraged. Simple enough. Be encouraged by what God is doing. Just imagine this. Imagine you're looking out at a barren field. It's like a wasteland. It's like the surface of Mars. Nothing is there. And I say to you as you look at it, behold, the kingdom. And you would say, that that's it? It's fairly unimpressing. It's pretty sad. What if I told you that underneath this soil there's a seed that has the power to transform this wasteland into a, a lush forest and right now it's working, even though you can't see it? If you believed, you would have hope and you would have encouragement. Indeed, God is at work. Even though the seed is small and you can't always see it working, it's there God's kingdom will grow. It is growing and the nations will be glad in it. And this is the great encouragement of the parables. Even though the farmer doesn't know how it all works, and even though as he goes about his own business, the kingdom grows. And let me tell you, this message, if you get this, it really helps and really encourages, especially when things look really bleak, when the outlook is bleak. Just, just do this. Put yourself in the shoes of those early Christians, the very first early church Christians. At the time, being a Christian was illegal. Rome was bearing down on you. And right and left, believers are being persecuted and arrested and tortured and killed. Thousands. Then there were false teachers. They were drawing precious people away from the truth. I mean, as you look at this, they suffered so much. Is this really what Jesus had in mind for the start of the kingdom? The answer to that question is, yes. Yes, it is. Remember, the mysteries of the kingdom, these paradoxes that he taught. Strength comes through weakness. Power through humility. Victory through defeat. Life through death. The early church faced so much. They suffered so much. But as long as the seed went out, as long as they continued to sow the gospel, it worked. Even amidst all that suffering and martyrdom and persecution, people still came to salvation, came to the faith. And then they immediately died, many of them, right after that, for Jesus. How do you explain that? A powerful seed. The seed was at work. Citizens were still added to the kingdom, even in the midst of that terrible time. That's what happened back then. The same is still true today. If you ever feel that things look bleak, just remember the seed and remember the mustard seed. And though it may be incomprehensible to you, though it may seem insignificant, God is at work in this world. Do you know that? Do you believe that? 
no matter what you see. Even now, as nations rise and fall, and as the spiritual landscape of our own country changes, God is still at work. His plan is still continuing. And so long as the seed is out there, it doesn't matter what else is happening. The seed is out there, it works. It's working. Lives will change. And with each life changed, another citizen is added to God's kingdom. When you understand this, it leads to a second application here, the second application. We're learning what God is doing in these parables. First, be encouraged by what God is doing. Second, participate in what God is doing. It's really simple, but participate in what God is doing. Look, you could spend all of your days doing nothing but worrying. You could just worry about everything, about what you see going on around you, about how bad things are. You could just worry, worry, worry. Or you could stop worrying and start sowing. I'm not talking about needle and thread. I'm talking about preaching the gospel. What do you think God wants you to do? You have your commission. If you're a believer, it's very simple. It's very clear. Go and make disciples. Preach the word. Share the gospel. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. Just, just tell people about Jesus. That's it. God has called you to do just one little thing. Go and sow the seed. Share the gospel. So do that. Tell people about the good news of Jesus. If, if it's so good that your life has been changed by it and you're overjoyed by, overjoyed by it, then tell people, unless you maybe haven't been changed by it. But tell people his death, his resurrection, his offer of forgiveness and new life and change. If any would just believe in him and, and turn from their sins, confess him as Lord and Savior. And look, a farmer will never see a harvest if he just stands there and stares at the field. Nothing's going to happen. He can till, he can weed, he can water. But until he gets around to throwing down some seed, nothing's going to happen. So what are you waiting for? Get out there, scatter the seed, share the gospel. Are you waiting for a better time? The time is now. Evangelize the lost. Think of the loved one. Think of the co-worker that you, you desire to see the Lord. The person you just wish would come to know the Lord. And you know what? Stop wishing. And start sowing. Because otherwise, what's going to happen? The seed must go forth. And the, the, the seed has the power to change lives. And it won't come to life unless it's sown. So just share the gospel. Romans 1, 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek meaning everyone. And that verse is so encouraging. Where's the power of God for salvation? Where is it? He put it in this little seed. It's called the gospel, the message of Jesus. That's it. You know what that means? That's really good news. It means you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be wise. You don't need a high IQ. You don't have to be a good public speaker. You don't need to be a good storyteller. You don't have to be powerful or rich. You don't even have to manipulate people. All you have to do is share the gospel. That's it. Just tell people about the Lord Jesus. The power of God's word will do the rest. Just be clear. Tell them the truth. And the seed 
We'll do the rest. Have confidence in the seed. And remember this. Yes, you are commissioned as sowers. That's your commission. But the salvation of souls doesn't depend on you. You can't control who gets saved. So look, just go sow the seed and then sleep easy. You don't have to worry about it. Isn't that what the farmer did? Because after all, the seed has to do its work and you can't control that. So you sow and then you sleep easy. Likewise, trust the seed of the gospel to do its work in people's lives. God is sovereign over that work. You can't control that. You're not called to control that. There's nothing to worry about here. Just be faithful. That's it. Just be faithful to sow the seed. That's it. Now, there's one just last little point I want to include here in this application. God is revealing what he's doing, how he's growing the kingdom. And as we learn that, it calls us to act. We're encouraged by what we see God doing. His kingdom is moving and it can't be stopped. And we're also called to participate in what he's doing. And we do that by by sowing the seed, by sharing the gospel. And would you agree that's the only way true disciples are made? Through sharing the gospel. Do you agree with that? I hope you do. It's the only way a true disciple is made through the gospel. If you get that, then can I say this? Don't mess with the seed. Don't mess with the seed. You understand what that means? Many people and pastors, churches, they start off by, by sowing the true seed, sharing the gospel. And then what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens, at least as far as they can see. They stare at this empty field. They say, well, where's the harvest? Why aren't people coming to the Lord? And some of them don't like waiting. They don't really trust the seed. They doubt the seed. And then they feel this pressure. People are thinking they're a failure. People are thinking their ministry isn't working. They start to ridicule them, and they get desperate for results. They just want to see some results. So what do they do? Instead of sticking to the one and only business that God calls them to do, just sow the seed, they start reasoning. You know, hey, you know, maybe we should switch up our strategy here. Let's drop this whole preaching the gospel thing. It's not working. It's not getting results. No more talking about sin. That's just driving people away. No more hell and judgment warning people. That's just They don't want to hear that. It's not working. Look, we'll keep Jesus, but we'll downplay this whole substitutionary atonement thing. We'll make him more like your buddy. It's like buddy Jesus. All love, no judgment from him. So many churches have gone down this road. The solid preaching of the gospel gives way to a watered-down gospel or, or no gospel at all. Sermons are replaced with motivational speeches. The Bible is replaced with funny stories and anecdotes. Exhortation is replaced with entertainment. And fellowship is replaced with fun and games. And don't get me wrong, this stuff is, all that's great. All that stuff is great if you're trying to build a church of the tares, a church full of weeds. But last time I checked, that's not our goal. Our mission is to make true disciples. And that only happens one way. Sow the true seed. Preach the gospel. 
And you know, when you do that, you, you have no control over the results. No control over the results. It's not up to you. What? Are you the Lord of the harvest? No, you're not the Lord of the harvest. So look, don't mess with the seed. Trust the seed. Trust that it's working, even if you can't see the results, even if you can't see the impact in your lifetime. Trust the seed. But wait, what if we don't see church growth? What if we don't double every two years? Listen, just be faithful. Sow the seed and God will work. I mean, did Jesus have a strategy meeting, decide to change things up after the thousands stopped following him and he was left with just a few? No. But so many today, they're driven by pride as if the size of their following is a reflection on their worth. That's just the flesh. To the contrary, your self-worth as disciples is affirmed just by your faithfulness. Just, just your faithfulness to do what God has called you to do. God is and will build his kingdom. And he doesn't need a light show to do it. He doesn't need a, a mega building or any building at all. The early church grew without any buildings. He doesn't need free Wi-Fi. He doesn't need a movie night. He doesn't need stand-up hour. He just calls for one thing, and we get to participate in it. Sow the seed. Preach the gospel. That's all it takes to get the seed where it needs to be. Just listen along. Just, you don't have to turn here. Second Timothy chapter 4. This is for you. You're not a pastor. You're not a preacher. Fine. But this is for you. Listen. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth. And will turn aside to myth. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. You want a simple translation? Don't mess with the seed. Trust the seed. Sow the seed. That's it. And this applies to you. Participate in what God is doing. God blesses that. God is pleased by that. Well, the year was 1826. Adoniram Judson had been imprisoned for years, beaten, tortured. His wife had died. All of his children had died. He was alone in Burma, a fiercely anti-Christian country. And over 12 years, he only knew... 18 converts. Let me ask, what do you think of him now? Failure? Well, God was not finished with this sower. The same Anglo-Burmese war that cost him years in prison and essentially the lives of his family members also threw open the door of the gospel to Burma. 
And for the next 24 years, he remained there, just faithfully doing the work of a farmer, sowing the seed. And there's power in that seed, the good news of Jesus. And over time, that seed worked. And God worked as he always does when his word goes forth. When Judson began his mission in Burma, his goal was to translate the Bible and found a church of a hundred members. Instead, when he died, he had translated the Bible into Burmese. But he also planted a hundred churches with over 8,000 believers. Today, there are over 2.5 million Christians in Burma or Myanmar. It's in large part due to him. But in the end, God gets the glory because it's his seed. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, I'll close with this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Father in heaven, we just confess that the truth of that verse, it's, it's your word and it's your mercy that you even revealed your word to us. We've sang it before, these wonderful words of life, and that's what it is. You chose to send your word down like rain. You didn't have to. We were the ones in rebellion against your rule. But your mercy came down. And through your power, you brought life to to dead sinners like us. Thank you for your word. We trust your word, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the power of salvation for all who believe. And there's so much power in that seed if we would just believe and see lives changed. If, if anyone is just faithful to you, there, there's no such thing as failure. That is success in your eyes. And Lord, help us to value. Help us to value that to be seen faithful and approved in your eyes. Not the world, but yours. We long for the day when we will return to you faithful with our calling, our commission to spread the word and just hearing those words from the master all by grace. Well done, that good and faithful slave. May we be faithful to you. We thank you for being so faithful to us. In the name we pray, amen.